Kentucky is like the perfect model of what's going on at the national level right now. And, um, you know, when you have a lot of young, new legislators, it's easy to get 20-week bans passed because folks want to do what's best for the party, but you don't know what's in the bill. I mean, this is actually hurting mothers, hurting lives, um, and so it, it needs to be corrected. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. Earlier this fall, the Republican-dominated U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill criminalizing abortions after 20 weeks gestation. Though it has not been brought to the Senate floor for debate yet, President Donald Trump has repeatedly said that if the bill makes it to his desk, he will sign it into law. Similar bills have been introduced before at the state and national level, even as federal judges have ruled that they're unconstitutional. They're currently on the books in 21 states, but in two of those states, Arizona and Idaho, these laws have been blocked by federal judges. Though these bans come in a few different forms with different purported justifications, the most common is based on model legislation drafted by the National Right to Life Committee, the country's oldest anti-choice organization, and its state affiliates. The U.S. House of Representatives and 16 states have passed their model legislation, called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Act, alluding to the unsupported and unscientific claim that fetuses can feel pain at 20 weeks gestation. That has been debunked by major medical groups, including the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Still, with a total disregard for that science, lawmakers continue to pass this legislation, even when they're told it can be devastating for pregnant people, their families, and the physicians who care for them. Today's storyteller experienced this firsthand. Heather Hyden, a 30-year-old woman living in Lexington, Kentucky, was about nine weeks along in her first pregnancy when she and her partner Jimmy learned that there might be something wrong with the fetus. I mean, we were terrified. I, I just felt like, I don't know, like we were naive in thinking that like, oh, we'll get pregnant and have a baby. I was, I was really scared that it was something like genetic with the two of us, so maybe we could never have a healthy baby. But the tests weren't definitive, and some even seemed to contradict one another. They needed more tests to see if they could save this very wanted pregnancy, but they were running out of time. When she was about 15 weeks along, she learned that Republican state lawmakers were fast-tracking a bill to ban abortion at 20 weeks. It was introduced by State Senator Brandon Smith, a Republican from Hazard, Kentucky, and was debated in the Veterans, Military Affairs, and Public Protections Committee as an emergency measure, meaning that if it was passed and signed into law, it would go into effect immediately. And so we agreed to get the amniocentesis, and right before we got the amniocentesis, is when we found out about the 20-week abortion ban coming up in the state legislature. So I immediately messaged my friend from the ACLU and said, this is affecting me directly. I want to testify. The hearing was the next day. Jimmy came with me, and we stayed up like almost all that night organizing people to come with us and writing our testimony. Um, So it was not like someone found me. I wanted to speak out about this um, because I had learned so much, you know, I was so, I had got a very quick education about what fetal anomalies are with it happening to me personally and felt like it was really important for others to hear um, what this is in great detail and how 
um, it was impacting our lives. We had found out that the diagnosis had gotten a lot worse the morning that we went to the hearing. Um, we found out that our that our baby cre- uh, had developed hydrops fatalis, which is um, an ultrasound marker um, where her whole body was filled with fluid. Um, there was fluid all around her heart and lungs. So we found that out, and then we rushed to Frankfurt to testify. Um, so... Um, the next hearing that we went to, we actually got, I got a minute to speak to Brandon Smith, who's the sponsor, and I held his hand and looked at him in the face and I said, Brandon, we're not trying to do anything crazy here. Like, we're just trying to get an exception for, you know, women and for families in my position. And he cried and left and then came back um, for the testimony. Um, And after we spoke, he went on his crazy tirade again about um, crushing fetal organs and how if this was puppies, we wouldn't be so cold. Um, I don't think there was one single woman on the military and veterans affair committee it was just it was like being in a dystopic like movie like all of these men like just pretending like they couldn't even see me watching me as I was trying to share with them how dangerous this legislation was for me and how it was going to basically put us on a conveyor belt of time where it's like, you know, just speeds up everything. It amplifies everything. It makes, it it scares you so much that you are worried like, okay, should I even get this test done? Should I, you know, how do we wait for results? What are we going to do if the results are positive? What do, you know, we, it gives you absolutely zero chance to, to just take care of yourself. Also creates this like environment of fear um, with doctors too. So we went to that hearing, of course, the bill passed. Um, I think there were only like two people in that whole committee that voted against it. The bill was passed in the Senate, then in the House, and signed by Governor Matt Bevin within a week. Um, so after the hearing, um, we were really freaked out. Um, our doctor, it seemed like at that point, I mean, she was concerned about, you know, what this ban was going to mean for her practice. Um it was very unclear because they passed it in a week. Um, so it was kind of all hands on deck trying to interpret it and figure out like what, what do they count as 
what what is 20 weeks to the to this bill um and we found out that it meant 20 20 weeks past fertilization so it's but in medical terms that's 21 weeks and six days so that was very confusing um trying to figure out like where we stand because um we were trying to get our amniocentesis and we had been told that the results can take two weeks you know or longer to get your results back so it was just a rush to try to get these tests done so we um got the tests we got the amniocentesis done um and it was horrible so we had two weeks to wait for the results and they confirmed that we were having a girl and that it was monosomy x so it was it was turner syndrome and we found out that the baby um that there was i was losing amniotic fluid so there was hardly any amniotic fluid left and um the fluid was getting worse um like this was about the time when some people get a full fetal anomaly scan like fetal um anatomy scan and um they could barely even do it because um i had such little amniotic fluid you couldn't even make out like legs really um a leg or a foot and then so this this is the point when things got really serious with our conversation with our doctor about you know what our options were and what she thought was happening she said that i was going to have a miscarriage she said that it was going to happen any day or that it could happen within the week. And so our options were wait and have the miscarriage and we'll take care of you here at the hospital. Um, We only lived like two miles from the hospital. Um, You know, if you're experiencing anything like your water breaks or you have contractions or you start to bleed, you know, come in and we'll take care of you. And then the other option was to go to EMW, to the abortion clinic. Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin ran on a platform of wanting to close down all of the abortion clinics in Kentucky. And so far, he appears to be seeing that promise through. When he took office in 2016, Kentucky had three abortion clinics. Now EMW Women's Surgical Center in Louisville is the only clinic left in the state. And EMW is currently in a legal battle with the state to try to stay open. Since Kentucky only has one abortion clinic now, anti-choice activists can concentrate their efforts there. And we'll actually have more on that next week. And reproductive rights and birth justice activists told Rewire that the cost of complying with Kentucky's strict and medically unnecessary anti-abortion laws have made abortions in Kentucky some of the most expensive in the country. EMW is the only abortion clinic left in Kentucky. There was one in Lexington up until last year. And um, I'm in Lexington. EMW is in Louisville. It's about a 75-mile drive from Lexington to Louisville. And it's like a three-day procedure, essentially, because you have to get... Because there was a new... Another law passed that requires an ultrasound. Um, You have to 
do that the day before and then you go in for one day and then you um, go in for a second day as well for a sec- late second trimester abortion. So um, we did not, we wanted to avoid EMW at all costs. Um, you know, we had been through so much emotionally and physically and um, we were just really afraid that we were going to get accosted by protesters and um, yelled at and and these people people just have no idea what we've been through I have my perception because I have seen the protest um, outside of the clinic um, but also I knew clinic ex- escorts and um, I knew that someone had I think that week been physically like pushed down onto the street like a woman trying to get care and I just didn't I just didn't think I could handle that I thought you know our doctor says we're this is going to happen this week so let's wait and see what happens because I really wanted to stay at my hospital with my doctors. Um, The other reason why we really wanted to wait was because we wanted to, I wanted to deliver my daughter vaginally. Like I want, I didn't want to have to go through a surgery. I wanted to give birth to her and I wanted to be able to find out, like send her down to pathology and find out exactly what was wrong with her. And I wanted to be able to um, have her organs donated for research. Um, So that was really important to us um, because her diagnosis, it was monosomy X, but she had just so many different symptoms that were going on with her that we just felt like she was a really rare case. Um, So... So that's why we were trying to do that, but um, we were we waited a week, and nothing had happened, and we actually rented a um, fetal do- like a home fetal Doppler monitor so that we could um, listen for the heartbeat, and if anything happened, we could go directly to the hospital. Um, and then we, um, waited a second week and I was starting to feel like what I thought were contractions and ended up going into the hospital like three different times, um, trying to see if I had any kind of symptoms of labor. And during that time, I was told by my doctor that if I had just dilated a centimeter, that they would take me in, but that their hands were tied. And um, that, you know, we were explained, it was explained to us that there's, you know, a poli- the hospital policy says that as long as there's a heartbeat, there's nothing that they could do. Um, I was so exhausted 
and physically just, I just could barely like get up in the morning. It was just really hard to go through every day and not knowing if you were going to have a miscarriage or not. They asked their doctor if they could petition the hospital's ethical review board to terminate the pregnancy there. The doctor said she would look into it, but Heather and Jimmy said they never heard back from her. So Heather started looking for other options. It was getting to the point where I was 19 weeks pregnant and I was terrified that we were going to have to go out of state um, to get care because of the new 20-week ban. I was calling any person that I knew who could possibly be a resource because I was so I was desperate. I mean, I called the nurse at three o'clock in the morning at some point, just begging her, like, can't you do something? Like, why do you, would you let someone suffer like this? Like, is there no one who can take care of me? Like, and you know, is there no doc? Are we, are we working with the wrong doctor? Are we working with the wrong hospital? Is all of this because we're at a Catholic hospital? You know, why aren't we getting care? And, um, we fi- I finally got into a conversation with the executive director of the Kentucky Health Justice Network, and we were talking about the abortion doulas in Memphis. And she said, she told me that the, um, she told me that there was an abortion doula in Louisville. And I said, okay, well, I would really like to be connected with this person because maybe they could help me, um, at that point, I was just looking for any kind of help from, like, anything, any resource, um, any tiny window <laughs> opening. Um, and so I called my doula. I, I called her, and she came straight to Lexington, like, the next day and came and stayed with us for the night and, you know, tried to help me relax Um, I remember taking a wonder, she like made me this amazing bubble bath that I'll just, I'll never forget. It's like the best bubble bath of my life, I think, because it was just, there was so much, she was just trying to help me, um, relax and just, you know, get in touch with what was happening to me and really get clear. Um, the doula that we were working with immediately um, got got in touch with people that she knew in her birth networks and were asking this question like what what can what can this mother do um, she's 19 weeks pregnant the they're saying that the baby is not gonna survive what you know what are her options um, and she found out that there were two doctors that could care for us at another hospital and that was like getting that call from the doctor saying hey I'm, I can help you was like I just I couldn't I just couldn't believe it it was just like a miracle or something 
But there were still hoops. She had to get it approved by their ethics review board. We had to get um, insurance approval because this could cost a crazy amount of money. We were told that it could be up to $20,000 out of pocket. And so they were trying to be careful for us to make sure that um, we could actually afford the care um, through my insurance company. And then um, we also had to schedule the appointment. At that point, I think that there was a part of me that was still hoping, like, well, maybe that maybe I will go into labor and still be able to be at my hospital. I was still holding on to that hope. Um, but it was like every day I would wake up and it's like, I didn't know if we were going to get approved for the insurance. I didn't know if we were going to be able to get the appointment in time before the timing ran out because of the new restrictions. I didn't know if I was going to start hemorrhaging blood and have a miscarriage. It was just horrible. We finally, we did get approval, um, and we were able to move forward. Um, we were able to schedule the appointment for, um, me to be induced at 20 weeks and three days. So like, you know, being within the deadline by a week, we still had to travel all the way to Louisville. Um, and we still had to go through the required ultrasound, even though we had been having so many ultrasounds. Because every time I would go into the doctor, even if I, it was the point where I thought I was having contractions, like I still had to get ultrasounds. So it was just completely superfluous that I had to get an ultrasound and be reminded again that my baby wasn't going to live. doula was with us uh, we were able to I was able to start um, the induction medication so we started on that early in the day on a Saturday and um, my doula was there the entire time Jimmy was there with me um, we had family there with us uh, and my best friend in the world came to be with me um, I mean, it was, it was like all hands on deck, you know, let's not do this alone. And it was, it was labor. It was real labor. It was 12 hours of labor. I, um, I had horrible contractions. I, um, was in extreme pain. I had to get hooked up to an IV. I had pain, pain meds that I was taking, I was in the labor and delivery room, but honestly, it was like, even though it was so painful, it was the best thing that could have happened. I delivered her at like 2.28 in the morning on the next, on that early that morning. And, um, we were able to hold her. We were able to take pictures of her. We were able to get her footprints. Um, I guess since I was 20 weeks and four days, it's tech, it's technically a, a stillbirth. And so we got a birth certificate. Um, but the greatest thing was that we had, 
that time to really be able to interact with her. Um, she was born without a heart, without a heartbeat. Um, so she was dead when she was born. Um, but you know, they were able to do a scan. They found where her neurotube defect was on her back, um, on a dimple. There's like a little dimple at the bottom of her back that, um, they found, um, you know, I w- there were so many ultrasounds where we could see this like fluid and, and everything. And I was really kind of terrified of seeing her for a long time. But we decided in two days, I think, before we went into the hospital that we did want to see her. Um, we knew we would regret it if we didn't. Um, that, that's, and that's just our choice. Um, that was our, that was our direction that we wanted to go in. We had gotten so many tests. This had been a complete roller coaster of diagnoses for us. So we felt like, you know, we needed to find, like, see what was going on with her, um, to really see her outside of ultrasound imagery. She was barely a pound. She was very sick. She looked really sick. She was swollen. Um, her belly was especially like super swollen with fluid, all of her fingers, all of her toes, her legs, her face. Um, you know, it, it was exactly the way that the ultrasound, you know, showed it to be honestly. And, um, you know, but I mean, she didn't really look like a, like a baby really. And we, but she also didn't look as bad as we thought she could look. We had been preparing ourselves since that nine-week ultrasound that we were possibly going to lose our baby. So I think that we had gone through a little bit of like, we didn't go through denial in that moment. And I think that that was important um, because we had found out so early so we had a lot of time to process that we weren't going to be taking her home. But I think that the childbirth to me was really important. I guess I wanted that experience. I felt like it was really important to find out, you know, was the placenta okay? You know, um, there's just so many different things that they can study and, and look at and, and research now, um, after birth to help you understand what might have gone wrong with your pregnancy. And we had healthy placenta. I mean, this was literally just one of those things where, you know, the cells did not divide in the right ways at the right time during conception. I mean, this was nothing that I could have changed that would have made this, made our daughter live. Heather and Jimmy are still processing all of this, finding comfort in support groups for people who've miscarried, had stillbirths, or who've lost an infant. Even though she's still working through her own grief, Heather continues to advocate on behalf of pregnant people against Kentucky's anti-choice legislation. Here's what Jimmy had to say. In the midst of all... In the midst of the most horrible thing that you've ever gone through to, you know, to constantly have in the forefront of your mind to advocate for other people is just the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. Like, (laughs) anyone do. (laughs) 
So, I mean, that's it. It's just to see, like, somebody continually sacrifice, you know, their time and their energy. <laughs> she just kind of keeps going. So, anyway. Heather says she keeps going because she doesn't want other people to have to go through what she went through and that people should not have to navigate religiously and politically motivated laws that have no grounding in medical science while they're trying to make difficult medical decisions. In this country, I mean, it's just really, it's opened my eyes to all, like I knew I was, I've worked with birth advocates, but you just never know until it happens to you or it happens to your best friend or it happens to your sister or it happens to your mother or your girlfriend or your wife or any woman that you're close to, you just, you don't know how like dysfunctional our medical system is until you go through it. You know, pregnancy is very random and it's not a given and it's not something that, um, that we need anyone else scaring us about you know it is hard enough to feel like it's hard enough to um, go through pregnancy just carrying all this weight and carrying all the the burdens of it but to also have this political climate this political pressure put on our doctors and our nurses and all of the folks who are trying to take care of women who, you know, went to, you know, decade of medical school because they cared about women and wanted to um, make sure that more healthy babies were able to make it into the world. And then you put all this political pressure on them and make them scared to do their job. I do not think that it's the constituents that are pressuring the lawmakers to do this. I think that there are um, organized groups that are pressuring lawmakers to do this. It was so important to me that another mother never have to go through this experience that I did. And if there was any way that I could contribute for research or to share what I've been through like that's what I I have to believe that like there's some kind of um I don't know like reason for all of it that there's some kind of purpose this episode was produced by me Jen Stanley for Rewire Radio Mark Folletti is our executive producer and director of multimedia Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for Choiceless is by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perrone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team, for getting the word out about Choiceless. Next week, we'll have a special two-part episode where we'll learn more about the efforts to close the last abortion clinic in Kentucky and how a group of far-right religious extremists, once seen as fringe even by anti-choice activists, are newly emboldened and have a seat at the table in today's current political climate. Thanks for listening.